Hey, baseball fans! I'm Matt Russell, and this is Three Strikes, You're Out, the baseball history podcast. I am really excited to bring you part two of a two-part show on one of the greatest pitchers of all time, Tom Seaver. This show picks up as the Mets are about to play the Oakland A's in the 1973 World Series. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go ahead and cue that up first. Otherwise, let's get to it! Batter up! To paraphrase one of Yogi Berra's famous yogiisms, the 1973 World Series was indeed deja vu all over again for the Mets. After winning an unexpected division title and then pulling off a stunning upset of the Cincinnati Reds for the pennant, the underdog Mets faced a proven winner in the World Series, the Oakland A's. The defending world champion A's had upset the baseball establishment by uniforming their long-haired, mustache players in flashy green and gold uniforms, while experimenting with orange baseballs, designated runners, and ball girls. Even their manager, Dick Williams, otherwise a traditionalist, sported long hair and a mustache. The swinging A's, hey, that's my team, boasted a great pitching rotation featuring three 20-game winners, Catfish Hunter, Vita Blue, and Ken Holtzman with the great Raleigh Fingers in the bullpen. Their scrappy lineup included speed-burning shortstop Burt Campy Campanarist, Gold Glove outfielder Joe Rudy, team captain Sal Bando, future Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson, and the previous year's World Series hero, Gene Tennis. After the team split their first two games, Seaver faced Hunter in Game 3. Night games in the World Series were still a novelty and didn't seem like such a great idea when the temperature hovered near 40 degrees for the three games at Shea Stadium. The Mets still started out hot, taking a 2-0 lead in Game 3 before Hunter could get going. But Bando doubled in the sixth inning and scored on another double by tennis. Campanaris led off the eighth inning with a single, stole second, and tied the game on a single by Rudy. Seaver exited the game after eight innings. Tug McGraw, who threw 10 innings in relief in the first three games, left after the 10th. Harry Parker allowed the go-ahead run the following inning, and the A's won 3-2. But the Mets managed to win the next two games and arrived at warm, sunny Oakland, California, one win away from a world championship. Barra could have handed the ball in Game 6 to George Stone, but Yogi went with his best and brought back Seaver to face Hunter again. Seaver later admitted that he lacked his good hard stuff as Oakland scored twice early and held on for a 3-1 win that tied the series. Remarkably, the A's had yet to hit a home run in the series entering Game 7. But two third-inning blasts by Campy Campanaris and Reggie Jackson sank the Mets and Matlack 5-2 and gave the A's the world championship. A decade would pass before the Mets even competed again to play October baseball. Despite a bittersweet 1973 season, Seaver converted his stellar performance and second Cy Young Award into a $172,000 contract. At the time, he was the highest paid pitcher in baseball. However, the pain in Seaver's shoulder and hip that impeded his performance down the stretch continued to plague him in 1974. Facing Steve Carlton and the Phillies on opening day for the second consecutive year, Seaver twice failed to hold leads before Tug McGraw surrendered a winning home run to rising star Mike Schmidt. Seaver's fastball was even less effective in his second start, prompting the pitching coach Rube Walker to ask if he was injured. It took Seaver five starts to finally get his first win. By Memorial Day, he was just two and five. Atlanta's Johnny Oates called his fastball, quote, a lame duck, unquote. Meanwhile, Seaver was being described as surly in the clubhouse and in dealings with the media. 
In his column in the New York Daily News, Dick Young wrote that Seaver was an agent of discontent among his teammates. For the first time in his career, Seaver had an ERA above three and failed to make the All-Star team. But 1974 was not a complete washout. Through September, he managed to strike out 187 batters while pitching through pain. Late in the month, he had two osteopathic sessions with Dr. Kenneth Ryland. The doctor diagnosed him with a sciatic nerve problem and a dislocated pelvic structure, both legacies from years of hard throwing. Seaver later estimated that Ryland worked on him for less than 10 minutes. After previously announcing that his season was over, he requested one final start. Facing Philadelphia in the next-to-last game of the 1974 season, Seaver still had a remote chance of becoming the first National League pitcher to strike out 200 batters in seven consecutive seasons. Despite an early two-run double by Willie Montanez that proved to be the deciding hit in a 2-1 loss, Seaver was masterful. He fanned eight Phillies through six innings and struck out the side in the seventh. Seaver entered the final inning still two strikeouts shy of the elusive 200 mark. After punching out Mike Schmidt with fastballs to lead off the ninth inning, Seaver fanned Montanez to achieve 200 strikeouts in seven seasons. Then, for good measure, Seaver ended the season by striking out Mike Anderson. The Mets had the cover image ready for their 1975 yearbook, a photo of Seaver posed with baseballs forming the number seven. With a rejuvenated arm, the Seaver of old reemerged at Shea Stadium in 1975. The pinnacle of his season occurred on September 1st when he reached a huge milestone during a shutout against the Pirates. When Seaver struck out Manny Sanguian in the seventh inning, he set a record that even pitching greats Walter Johnson and Rube Waddell never attained. He became the first pitcher to strike out 200 batters in eight consecutive seasons. The victory was Seaver's 20th of the season, and he added two more to finish at 22-9. He was denied another victory, despite taking a no-hitter two outs into the ninth inning at Wrigley Field on September 24th, with Joe Wallace singling to break up the bid. Seaver edged out San Diego's Randy Jones to earn his third Cy Young Award, becoming the second pitcher, after Sandy Koufax, to win the award three times. But contract negotiations would be a big issue for Seaver the following year. The Dodgers' Andy Messersmith and Montreal's Dave McNally had played the entire 1975 season without contracts. On December 23rd, arbitrator Peter Seitz ruled that both players were free to negotiate new contracts to the highest bidding team on the open market. The reserve clause, which had bound a player to his employer for life, was now obsolete, and players with six years' experience were now free to negotiate contracts with other teams. This ushered in the free agent era, which continues to this day. Accordingly, Seaver demanded a three-year, $825,000 contract from the Mets. Team president M. Donald Grant grew incensed and threatened to trade him to the Dodgers for Don Sutton. One pitch into the 1976 season, Seaver would become a 10-for-5 man. Under the new rules, any player with 10 years' experience, five with the same team, could reject any prospective trade, leaving the Mets only a few months to arrange a deal for Sutton. Rather than risk a public relations nightmare from trading their franchise player, the Mets agreed to renegotiate with Seaver, offering an incentive-based contract with a base annual salary of $225,000 through 1978. Though Seaver reluctantly agreed, it cost him any professional rapport he had with Grant. Though Seaver's record in 1976 was a disappointing 14-11, the Mets' offense produced only 15 total runs in his losses. Registering seven consecutive winless starts, 
0-4 with three no decisions between July 13th and August 24th, he still managed to limit the opposition to a 2.13 ERA. Seaver's ERA for the year was 2.59, which was third in the league, and his 235 strikeouts earned him his fifth National League strikeout crown. He also extended his record of 200 strikeouts to nine consecutive seasons. But as impressive as Seaver's 1976 numbers might have been, they represented his last hurrah in a Mets uniform. The Mets reacted to baseball's new free agent reality by doing nothing. Even after they finished a mediocre third place in the previous two seasons, Seaver watched in dismay as other teams signed players with star caliber. The Yankees signed former Reds pitcher Don Gullett to a six-year, $2 million contract. This was over $100,000 more a year than Seaver had renegotiated with the Mets. And Gullett was no Tom Seaver. Mets slugger Dave Kingman was also having a tough time renegotiating his contract. Seaver now suspected that he would have been better off not signing a 1976 contract and filing for free agency. When he brought this up to the Mets chairman Grant, his reaction was predictable. He labeled Seaver as an ingrate and blasted the economic system the baseball union had created. The Seaver and Grant relationship now went from bad to worse. Most of the New York writers sided with Seaver on the issue, including Mari Allen of the New York Post. Allen wrote, quote, When you have the best pitcher in the world, you sign him. You don't humiliate him. Grant can't stand opposition from Seaver or anybody, unquote. Allen said that Grant would sooner lose a pennant than accede to the demands of his players and their agents. Dick Young of the Daily News sided with Grant and labeled Seaver a troublemaker and insisted that no team would be interested in signing him. But Seaver ignored all the media distractions, posting a record of 4-0 by the end of April and tossing his fifth one-hitter as a Met against the Cubs. This didn't stop Young from continuing his attack against him. He wrote insultingly, quote, Tom Tewiffick, using W's instead of R's like Tweety Bird would pronounce it, is a pouting, griping, morale-breaking clubhouse lawyer poisoning the team, unquote. The Mets were doing poorly, though, even with Seaver's good pitching. By the end of May, the team was already 13 games out of first place. The Mets had hired their fourth manager in two years, replacing Joe Frazier with the untested Joe Torrey. Meanwhile, the trading deadline was only two weeks away. Rumors began to circulate that general manager Joe McDonald was arranging a deal to send Seaver to the Reds. On June 7th, Seaver struck out 13 Reds in an 8-0 shutout at Shea Stadium to improve his record to 6-3. Sparky Anderson remembered the game, quote, for years, I had been naming Tom whenever I was asked as baseball's best pitcher. I never saw him better than he was that night when he whipped us. It was an artistic effort. I drooled when I thought of what a pitcher of Seaver's class could do for us, unquote. After Seaver won in Houston on June 12th, the Mets offered to extend his contract so that it would be comparable to a free agent offering elsewhere. He would receive a three-year extension, which included a pay raise to $300,000 in 1979 and then to $400,000 in 1980 and 1981. On June 14th, one day before the trading deadline, Seaver contacted McDonald to halt trade negotiations with the Reds. He planned to remain a Met. However, as he read the Daily News on the road in Atlanta, he was shocked by the latest column from Dick Young. Quote, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Seaver, and that galls Tom because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly, and Tom Seaver long has treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother, unquote. 
As Seaver told Bruce Markison years later, he had finally had it with M. Donald Grant and the New York media. Incensed that Young would make up a story aimed at his family, Seaver immediately sought out public relations director Arthur Richmond. Get me out of here, he ordered Richmond, and tell Joe McDonald everything I said last night is forgotten. Tom Terrific would be a Met no longer. On June 15th, Tom Seaver was traded to the Cincinnati Reds for a package of players, none older than 26. Pitcher Pat Zachary, infielder Doug Flynn, and outfielders Steve Henderson and Dan Norman. This infamous trade became known throughout baseball as the Midnight Massacre. After an emotional press conference in the Shea Stadium clubhouse, Seaver was ready to move on and joined his new teammates in Montreal. Although he was disappointed with the way things ended with the Mets, at least he would no longer have Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, or Joe Morgan to face. The Reds had won two World Series in 1975 and 1976, but they now trailed the Dodgers in the 1977 National League West standings. Tony Perez was gone, but George Foster had emerged as a force to be reckoned with. His 52 home runs were the most by any major league slugger in a dozen years. But despite a 14-3 record and a 2.34 ERA for Cincinnati, including a victory over old teammate Jerry Kuzman at Shea Stadium in August, the Reds did not overtake the Dodgers in the standings. And although Seaver had earned his fifth and final 20-win season, he fell short of his 10th straight 200-strikeout season by just four strikeouts. Even so, Seaver brought huge positives to the Reds. He brought out scores of fans to Riverfront Stadium on days he pitched, and he also conveyed a presence in the locker room that was felt even among the two-time world champions. Manager Sparky Anderson recalled later, quote, Seaver was a joy to have around. He is such a bright young guy that his weird sense of humor almost seems out of character. His personality fit right in with the veterans. They accepted him, and he accepted them. Moreover, Tom was of tremendous help to our young pitchers who frequently sought his advice, unquote. Seaver, who hadn't really bonded with a manager since the death of Gil Hodges, worked well with Anderson. He remarked, quote, Sparky communicates well. He's intelligent. He has the smarts. He believes in his convictions. He'll argue to the death when he thinks he's right, and he often is right, unquote. Expectations were high for the 1978 Reds to re-establish themselves as the preeminent club in their division. Seaver did his part, posting a record of 16-14 with 226 strikeouts and a 2.88 ERA. On June 16th, he reached an achievement he never accomplished as a Met. He pitched a no-hitter against the St. Louis Cardinals. The Reds, however, came up short once again in the standings to the Dodgers and Dick Wagner, now operating as the Reds' general manager, wanted his own man in the dugout. Anderson was let go. Injuries hampered Seaver's performance early in the 1979 season, but he recovered to win 14 of his last 15 games. After two second-place finishes in the past two years, the Reds won their division once again under new manager John McNamara. But the Pittsburgh Pirates, in their stovepipe hats and led by Willie Pop Stargell, had won their division in a close race with the Montreal Expos. It would be the fourth league championship series of the decade between Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, with the first three won by the Reds. This time, however, Cincinnati was without Rose, who'd signed as a free agent with Philadelphia the year before. Though Seaver limited the Pirates to two runs and five hits in Game 1, Pittsburgh starter John Candelaria was equally effective. 
but Willie Stargell snapped the tie in dramatic fashion, hitting a three-run homer off reliever Tom Hume in the top of the 11th inning. The Pirates went on to sweep the Reds before defeating the Baltimore Orioles in the 1979 World Series. Seavers' 10-8 season in 1980 was another disappointment. The Reds finished third, and he suffered from arm trouble for the first time in his career. The following season was equally disappointing, but for entirely different reasons. Although the Reds posted the best record in baseball in 1981, a midseason player strike resulted in a unique split-season format. The Reds finished second in both halves and were shut out of the postseason. And while Seaver's record of 14-2 represented the highest winning percentage in either league, his comeback season coincided with Fernando Mania, the pandemonium that surrounded the Dodgers' unhittable rookie phenom Fernando Valenzuela. Seaver lost the Cy Young Award to Valenzuela by one vote. But the 1981 season was not without personal acclaim for Seaver. He reached the 3,000 strikeout plateau when he fanned Cardinal Keith Hernandez on April 8th. Currently, there are only 18 pitchers that have ever reached 3,000 strikeouts. During the next season, 1982, frustration mounted for Seaver. Star players left the Reds, including trades of Ken Griffey and George Foster, and Dave Collins was lost to free agency. The Reds plunged to the division seller in 1982 with an abysmal record of 61-101. and Even Seaver was not immune. He went just 5-13 with a career-worst ERA of 5.50. Emerging from the worst record in franchise history, the Reds were eager to part with their 38-year-old pitcher with a suspect shoulder. But one team was enthusiastic about trading for Seaver. There had been big changes in the Mets organization. In 1980, they had been sold to a new management team. M. Donald Grant had retired, so he was out of the picture. George Foster had been acquired from the Reds to beef up the power-hitting side of the team. The Mets now wanted a proven winner that was a hero to New York already. Accordingly, Seaver was reacquired from the Reds on December 16, 1982. Over 48,000 fans were in attendance at Shea Stadium on April 5th to see Tom Terrific throw six shutout innings against the Phillies in his first game back from the Reds. Rookie Doug Sisk, who got the win in relief against Steve Carlton, said that, quote, he didn't know Seaver could still throw that hard, unquote. It was his 14th opening day assignment, which tied another Walter Johnson pitching record. Seaver ended up being the most durable pitcher on the 1983 Mets, and led the staff with 135 strikeouts in 231 innings. However, not even Seaver, rookie Daryl Strawberry, or midseason acquisition Keith Hernandez could guarantee a winning season for the Mets. Seaver went 9-14, and the Mets suffered their seventh consecutive losing season. That long streak was about to end, but Seaver would not be around to experience it. The 1981 player strike had established an annual pool of players from which teams could select players as compensation for free agent losses. The Mets had several young prospects they were anxious to keep for 1984 and did not think that any team would want Seaver, who was now 39 years old. He was still very important to the team, especially as an attendance draw for all Mets fans. So they left Seaver unprotected, kept their young players, but lost their franchise again. The Chicago White Sox had become eligible to take an unprotected player from any other club, and on January 20, 1984, they selected Seaver. The White Sox had won 99 games the previous season before losing the American League Championship Series to the Orioles and were excited to bring in a pitcher of Seaver's stature. They viewed him as the final piece to get them a championship. 
White Sox president Eddie Einhorn said, quote, Tom's a competitor. I think he's going to be happy here. This is the best place for him for the rest of his career. It's an excellent way to end it. It's possible he'll get back to the World Series. He'll certainly reach 300 wins with us. And the atmosphere is great, unquote. But the White Sox had capitalized on weak American League West opponents in 1983, winning the division by 20 games over second-place Kansas City. But this would turn out to be a one-year anomaly. Although Seaver won a respectable 15 games in 1984 and 16 games in 1985, the White Sox had returned to being just a mediocre team. Seaver did enter the record books by being the pitcher of record of a game on May 9, 1984. When Harold Baines won the game with a home run in the 25th inning, Seaver had won the first eight-hour game in Major League history. The game had actually been stopped after 17 innings the day before, and Seaver completed the game the following day. But Seaver was also the scheduled starter for another game later that same day, which he also won. So he became the first White Sox pitcher since Wilbur Wood to win two games played in the same day. The next year, Seaver did achieve his milestone 300th win with the White Sox on August 4, 1985, in a game at Yankee Stadium. At the time of this podcast, there are only 24 players to ever achieve this number of wins. Seaver is currently number 18 on the list. As the 1986 season approached, Seaver could see the end of his professional baseball career coming. His mother had died that spring, and he wanted to spend more time with his family. Seaver asked to be traded to a New York team or to Boston to be closer to his Connecticut home. On June 29th, the White Sox granted him his wish, dealing him to the Red Sox. The trade reunited Seaver with manager John McNamara in Boston. Led by perennial batting champion Wade Boggs, dependable outfielders Jim Rice and Dwight Evans, and pitching sensation Roger Clemens, the Red Sox were poised for their first World Series appearance since 1975. After a tight pennant race with the Yankees and an exciting championship series victory over the Angels, the Red Sox did indeed return to the Fall Classic. But Seaver, after posting a 7-13 record in an injury-plague season, was left off the postseason roster. He was unavailable in Game 6 when McNamara required a right-hander in the 10th inning. This was the famous inning that ended when a ground ball passed between Bill Buckner's ankles for a historic and infamous loss. The Red Sox went on to lose Game 7 and the World Series. Who were the winners, you ask? The New York Mets. Seaver did try a comeback with the Mets one last time the following season, but the magic was gone and Seaver announced his retirement on June 22nd. And what a fantastic career he had. He ended his 20-year career with 311 wins, 3,640 strikeouts, 61 shutouts, and an amazing 2.86 earned run average for his career. Most starting pitchers would be happy with a couple of seasons with a 2.86 ERA. But an entire career average? Wow! I really hadn't realized this until doing the research for this show. To top this, only one other player in history ended their career with at least 300 wins, 3,000 strikeouts, and an ERA of under 3. The great Walter Johnson whose career ended in 1927. That makes Tom Seaver the only pitcher from the modern era to do this. Simply amazing. A year after retiring, Seaver joined Casey Stingle and Gil Hodges on the short list of Mets players to have their numbers retired. Most of his Mets records may never be broken, including wins, 198, 
Complete Games, 171, Shutouts, 44, Starts, 395, Innings, 3,045, Strikeouts, 2,541, and an overall ERA of 2.57. Tom Seaver was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1992 by an unprecedented 98.8% margin. Over 10,000 fans gathered to witness his induction speech. In a speech filled with emotion, Tom Terrific spoke of his deep love and respect for the game, which meant so much to him. He thanked his family and friends for support. Seaver later said, quote, Getting to the Hall of Fame is spectacular. It is the dream of anyone who ever put on a uniform, unquote. After retirement, Seaver got into broadcasting and was at the mic for five seasons with the Yankees. He also spent seven years as a Mets broadcaster before leaving after the 2005 season. After living most of his adult life in Connecticut, Seaver later returned to his native California in 2002, establishing a winery with his wife, Nancy, near Calistoga. In March 2019, Seaver announced that he was retiring from the public eye as he was diagnosed with dementia. The Mets also announced that the address for City Field would be changed to 41 Tom Seaver Way. The 50th anniversary celebration of the Mets' 1969 championship included the unveiling of a statue of Tom Seaver, a player forever linked with the Miracle Mets season. On September 2, 2020, baseball fans, including myself, were shocked and saddened to hear that the greatest Met, Tom Seaver, had passed away. He died in Calistoga, California at the young age of 75 due to complications of dementia and, as a sad sign of our times, COVID-19. But let's not let the sadness take away from the fantastic baseball career and life of Tom Seaver. He is a true baseball legend, and in my opinion, one of the top 10 pitchers of all time. His list of achievements is immense. He was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1967. He was a 12-time All-Star, a 3-time National League Cy Young Award winner, and will forever be remembered as the main reason the New York Mets were the 1969 World Series champions. He still holds the records for consecutive strikeouts in a row with 10, and for 9 consecutive 200 strikeout seasons. No one, not Bob Gibson, Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, or anyone else you can name, ever did this. Tom Seaver, winner of 311 games, is the greatest Met of all. Next time, Three Strikes You're Out will feature the most feared power hitter of the 1970s, the awesome Willie Stargell. He hit 296 home runs during this time, the most of any MLB player, and helped the Pittsburgh Pirates win six National League East division titles, two National League pennants, and two World Series championships in 1971 and 1979. This affable giant of a hitter was known for his ability to hit tape measure home runs and at one time held the record for the longest home run in nearly half of the National League parks. I'm really looking forward to this one. See you in the bleachers. Special mentions go out to the following. I would like to thank YouTuber Mr. Runnerholic, look him up, for his permission to use his cover of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Special thanks go out to Maxwell Cates for a great article on Tom Seaver on the great baseball history resource, Saber.org. Thank you, Mr. Cates. Also, if you want to contact me with comments or show ideas, please email me directly at matt at 3 or you can go to my website, 
3strikesyoureout.com, click on the Contact Us button and submit your email there. I'd really like to hear from you. Thanks.